We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The moon is our closest celestial neighbor, but how much do we know about it? Certainly not as much as we'd like to. It's the subject of ongoing study and debate among people like our guests. Joining me in studio are Brad Joloff. He is the Scott Rudolph Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University. Rebecca Boyle is a freelance science writer who writes mainly about space for The Atlantic and other prestigious publications. And she's writing a book about the moon for Random House. Also with us is St. Louis Public Radio science reporter Eli Chen. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. Good to be here. You don't look all that disappointed, although I expect you are because of the weather factor in the lunar eclipse. Brad, how disappointed are you? Well, I I was disappointed at first, but I stuck with it. And about halfway through the uh, portion of totality, the skies cleared. And so I actually got a very nice look at it. And so it was really beautiful. I watched it, I think, for about an hour or so after that. Uh, So I wasn't totally disappointed. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Rebecca, how about you? Yeah, same. I was a little bit bummed at first that it was mostly cloudy. I could kind of see the partial phases through the clouds. It was pretty, pretty faint. Um, And then all of a sudden, it was like 1045. I walked outside and the clouds just dissipated and it was perfectly right on time for the the red totality phase. Well, at least we had that. And Eli, how about you? You came back from Puerto Rico just to be here to see it. (laughs) That's one way of putting it. Um, So it was mostly overcast, but I felt like where I was, the moonlight had kind of carved this beautiful circle around the moon, and I was able to see most of it. Brad, what were you looking to look for uh, during this whole event, several hours of the uh, eclipse? Well, this is is really the first time I've seen one quite this well. And so I actually had a, a small backyard telescope out on my back deck. And that was useful because even when the moon was in the clouds, I could, I could kind of get a, a look at it. So I, I really was interested in the color. I wanted to see what the color would do. And um, just thinking about what is going on at the moon, you know, we have a little orbiter, lunar reconnaissance orbiter, that is working around the moon right now. And so it was orbiting. And I was just thinking about it while this was all happening and hoping, hope it stays warm enough and, and is safe when it comes out of this. Because, you know, when we're in eclipse, it's very, very cold and it's not getting its solar power. And I was also thinking about the uh, little Chinese spacecraft on the far side sitting there surviving the nighttime. That's something we want to talk about more, but Rebecca, I'll go to you. Were you looking specifically to learn anything, or was it an aesthetic event for you? It's usually an aesthetic event for me. Um, This one was special in a few ways, and one of them was that it was at um, Apogee, is that right? Highest point. Apogee. I always get this wrong. Pa- no, the, moon, the moon's at perigee. Perigee, so it's, it's at its <laughs> which closest is its point. Closest point to Earth, so it looked much larger, which is why people called it a super moon and blood moon. A super blood moon because mm. of the red color, um, which, and again, I defer to Brad on these questions, but um, I understand it turns that color because it's reflecting the light of every sunrise and sunset on Earth. Um, because of the position of the Earth in mm-hmm. front of the moon, which is what gives it that kind of blood red tint. Um, I think. A long time ago, people were a little bit freaked out by that color, and it maybe signified something ominous and was a bad, you know, a signal of of doom. But knowing what it actually is, I think, is very poetic and um, 
gives me an appreciation for what the moon represents to us here on Earth. Eli, you, I, if I remember this correctly, you were to uh, to uh, spend time with Brad doing watching this. Uh, this yeah, event, with both Brad and Rebecca, mm-hmm. um, but unfortunately, weather constraints sort of uh, nixed our plans. Mm-hmm. What were you hoping to find out during? during this event with these two folks. Yeah, so what I had hoped out of the interview is that as we were looking at the moon, we would talk about things of the moon that were not visible to us. So um, especially about the far side of the moon, which Brad is very interested in. So yeah, actually, um, if we could sort of segue into that part of the conversation, that'd be great. Um, Brad, could you talk about you know your interests in the far side of the moon? Well, for the past 20 years or so, I've had an interest in actually doing a mission to the moon to go to the far side, land in the giant South Pole Lake and Basin, which I'll tell you about in a minute, collect a sample and return it to Earth because it's one of the highest science priorities we have in planetary science right now and uh, something we'd really like to do. So I've been part of the uh, NASA New Frontiers program uh, proposals now three times. Um, We haven't been selected because it's a competitive thing and we've had very, very good competitors. But I would love to do this, Uh, collect this sample, return it to Earth, get the age of the South Pelican Basin uh, because it's a a big science objective. It's the oldest and largest of the big impact basins on the moon and knowing its age will tell us something about the early impact history of the Earth-Moon system and even how our early solar system evolved. So very interested in doing this, uh, doing this mission. What are the Chinese doing there now? So the Chinese with the Shanga 4 mission have a lander on the far side, first far side lander, soft lander like this. And so they've really done a nice accomplishment. Now, the, they landed in the South Pole Aiken Basin, but it's a huge basin, 2,500 kilometers across, mm. or something like 1,500 miles. And it's huge. It's a distance from, what, St. Louis to Los Angeles. So they landed in a portion of the basin that's actually fairly far to the north in the basin in a crater called Von Karman Crater. Von Karman is itself a, a fairly large crater. So they've landed there, and they've got a couple of objectives. One of them is that this is a clone of the Shanga 3 mission, which was also a lander with a rover. So they've got a little rover called U-2 number 2. And they hope to do some geologic exploration with that rover. They've got a little ground-penetrating radar. They've got a visit-near-IR camera that will tell them about the mineralogy at that site. And it'll be a nice little geologic exploration. They've also got some experiments that are looking at the radiation environment in that part of the far side and looking at the radio uh, environment as well. So as as Eli uh, mentioned, it's a very special place. The moon blocks Earth's radio emissions. And so on the far side, it's what we call a radio quiet environment, one of the quietest environments probably in in the uh, solar system for looking at the radio signals that are coming from deep space. They have to bounce it off a satellite or something, don't they, to transmit it back here? So they do. They have a satellite that was launched last May, and that sits at a very special place on the far side of the moon, uh, beyond the far side of the moon, well beyond, at one of the so-called Lagrange points, um, and it and it orbits at that location. It's a very stable location, but they can see the far side of the moon, and they can see the Earth. So that satellite serves as a communication go-between between the Shanga 4 lander and rover and uh, Earth. You can't bend the signal around the moon, obviously. No, it's not right. It has to be a straight line. Straight line of sight. Well, the key question, I guess, with uh, regard to the Chinese expedition is, are they going to share 
what they learn and what they find there with people like you? Well, they will. They will eventually share. Uh, they do not right now have the same kind of system that we have uh, in, the U- in the U.S. NASA has something called the Planetary Data System or the PDS. We actually have at Washington University one of the nodes, the geosciences node of the PDS. And the way NASA missions work is almost immediately after data is collected, images are taken, uh, those are made publicly available, and that's done through the planetary data system. China doesn't have such a system yet, but we've actually been working with colleagues at at Shandong University where we have um, a collaboration to get such a system going, and we hope to help them with that so that they'll make the data available. They, they, they don't quite have the system we have yet, but they're working on it. Have I read this or have I imagined it, that the far side of the moon is probably very much different than that portion that we can see that has been bombarded by stuff over the eons? Well, it is, and it's a very interesting thing you say. The far side does look very different from the near side, uh, but it has had the same bombardment of large basin size impacts. And what I'm talking about are, are impact craters that are 300 kilometers across or more. They're, they're huge, you know, to put that into miles, about 200 miles across. These are very, very large impacts. On the near side of the moon, many of those have filled in with lava, with dark basaltic lava, and so it gives us this sort of the the um, man in the moon face, if you will. But on the far side, the basins have not filled in with lava in quite the same way, so it actually looks very different. If you see a picture of the far side and all you've you've ever seen before is the near side of the moon, you wouldn't recognize it. Rebecca, this is all fascinating stuff to you, I know, because you write about it so much and so well. Uh, I read uh, some of your material recently talking about what we know and don't know about the formation of the moon and how it might uh, might be part of debris from the Earth, perhaps, that uh, take us through some of that. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah, so this is a pretty active area of research right now. Um, but yeah, there, there's a debate about what exactly caused the moon to form, why it's where it is, and why it's so large relative to the Earth, um, which is one of the things that makes it unique in the solar system. Most other moons are multiples. Uh, most planets have more than one moon, and most of those moons are very small compared to the size of their host world. Um, but our moon is solitary, and it's really large. Um, for a long time, people thought that it was sort of shorn off the Earth at some point in the history of the planet, um, in large part because of Apollo samples that were returned here in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and the, the, the signals in those rocks kind of told people a story about um, how the moon came to be. That's now changing a little bit, in part because our instruments are much more sophisticated than they were back then. and. Um, there's been some debate about the nature of the moon and the nature of the Earth and how very similar they are, um, which is calling into question the prevailing theory of the giant impact that um, carved out the moon. So this this has, for a long time has held that something the size of Mars smacked into Earth very early in the planet's formation and kind of, if you imagine like clay on a potter's wheel and you would smack it. Um, a chunk kind of flew off and then coalesced into the moon, and that's the moon we have now. Um, There are some problems with this, um, stemming from the fact that the Earth and the moon are are almost identical chemically, which suggests that um, they form from the same material. So if, if the giant impact theory is right, the moon would be made mostly from the impactor, which is called Theia, um, this Mars-like thing that, that whacked into us. Um, But 
it doesn't look like that. It looks like it's part of Earth. And so how would that happen? How would we arrive at this scenario where the, the Earth liquefied or, you know, vaporized essentially and left over the Earth we have now and the moon we have now? Um, and there are a lot of people working on this. And um, it's a big problem in terms of the dynamics involved. It's very hard to model this in computers. Um, and it's a challenge in terms of the geochemistry, looking at the very small amounts of isotopes in lunar rocks and comparing them to Earth rocks to look at um, differences. Brad, what do you think, number one? And number two, if we were whacked by something the size of Mars, wouldn't there be a, a dent someplace? Uh, okay, a flat so there, spot? So, yeah, these are, these are all good questions. Uh, this is the prevailing theory right now that this very, very large impact actually put a, a cloud of debris around the Earth and that that debris, the, the portions of it that were far enough out beyond the Roche limit, then came together uh, and accreted to form the moon. Very, very hot. would have been very, very hot. This is actually, you know, molten and even vaporized material that we're talking about. And so after this happens, the Earth is also very hot, and it, it can actually re become uh, spherical again. That's just its natural state. It, it, it um, wouldn't have the strength to maintain a big divot, and it's not like a big chunk was broken out. It was actually more like a molten cloud of, of vapor and, and um, uh, melted material. And so that stuff came together and, and formed the moon. And as Rebecca says, the, really the devil's in the details. And we're looking very carefully at the isotopic signature of a number of elements to see if they behave or if they give us the evidence that would show that some of the material was lost because of the high temperature of vaporization. A lot of this uh, actually can be modeled, and, and so the models are, are improving in sophistication all the time, and, and at some point we may find that we need another theory, but right now it's the best one. Eli, will you ever look at the moon uh, the same way after learning all, all of this? Probably not, and um, you know, I'm, th I know this is a chapter out of the book that Rebecca is writing, so I'm actually curious, Rebecca, why did you choose the moon to be the subject of this book? <laughs> Um, I mean, I write about it a lot. It's, the moon is sort of my beat as a writer. Um, but to me, it's, it's interesting because I think we as a species have sort of forgotten what it represents to us and what it meant to us, you know, through time. Um, and that's what the book is, is my goal <laughs> with the book is to show people that, you know, we have a very deep and lasting relationship with the moon that goes well beyond our interest in it um, scientifically and our interest in it for exploration and, and for resource utilization, which is um, kind of be the, the next near term future of the moon is, is mining up there. Um, but, you know, it, it has meant much more to us than that for a very long time. In what ways? Certainly the spatial relationship is, is important and, and interesting and worthy of study. But what about the, the, the other connections? Um, one of them is that the moon was our first way that we learned how to tell time um, because it changes its appearance every night um, because of the way that it orbits around the mm -hmm. Earth. And um, that changes on time scales that matter to people. Um, it's just, you know, a few days here and there and it reappears and it's very predictable and you can start to track it and um, realize that there are these repeating cycles that you can use to mark time. And uh, the word month comes from the moon um, and our, almost all of our calendars come from the lunar cycle. Um, and so without the moon, you know, it would be much more difficult for us to divide the year. You'd have seasons, um, but those are variable depending on where you are. 
and those are changing all the time. And so the moon gives us kind of a reliable um, timepiece in the sky to track the time of year, which was useful for things like planting the harvest, when to sow crops, when to chase animals that were migrating. Um, it served as our first kind of clock. And the tides, of course, and influence and yeah, the, on the tides. Its, its influence on life is really profound, and I think is still being, you know, is still trying to be understood. You know, we know obviously that the, the tides, um, that the moon influences the oceans, and that influences the mixing of nutrients in the oceans. Without that daily sloshing of back and forth of water, um, there may not be nutrients kind of brought up from the surface of the ocean. That affects the entire food chain. Um, its light also is a, is a very important driver of biology. A lot of species either use their mating or migration um, depending on the cycles of the moon. Brad, I wonder about affecting us. I mean, if it has a gravitational pull of any kind of source at all, and it obviously does, I wonder about us as individuals if we are affected by the moon. Well, I think it does affect, it, it has a lot of effects on our own physiology, but I like to think of the broader effect. Having a moon uh, such as the large moon that Earth has actually stabilizes the Earth's um, obliquity, and it stabilizes the, the angle to which the, the Earth exposes to the sun. And that's really important because if you think about a planet like Mars has huge swings in its obliquity, which means that um, over per great periods of time, the environments change significantly from the poles to the equator. So our moon actually stabilizes Earth in such a way that is very, very conducive to life on Earth. The, uh, just trying to imagine what it must have been like for the ancients to figure this stuff out that Rebecca was talking about. And Rick, hey, wait a minute, this does the same thing at the same time every month. Maybe we can make use of this somehow. Oh, I think we'd be fascinated to know all of the things that were, were being thought about um, in, the, in early days uh, as humans look to the moon. We here, we and the moon, are we just space debris? Are we here because of other kinds of collisions in other parts of uh, the great beyond? Well, it's a great question that you ask. And, and let me come back to the, the reason I was so interested and, and still am in, in collecting a sample from the far side to learn the age of the South Pole Lake and mm -hmm. Basin. The, the idea is that the moon holds a record of the impact cratering past that Earth and Moon and other planets in the solar system have gone through. And, and it's really the best place in the solar system to study this process. And going <clears> back <throat> in history, what we see is from the Apollo samples, there's an indication that there was a, a, a very great uh, raining down of asteroids and comets around four billion years ago. Um, perhaps not just a gentle uh, decline from the point of accretion, but a spike in the impact flux at that time. And if that happened, why did it happen? Dynamicists are now looking at models for the early evolution of the solar system that have such phenomenal uh, uh, things as perhaps the, the orbit of Jupiter and Saturn changing and migrating outward and causing a destabilization of an early asteroid belt and causing this raining down of, of projectiles on the inner solar system. So there's an awful lot that we can learn from the moon and about our own uh, early history. And as we look at other solar systems, with uh, things like the Kepler Space Telescope and, and other planet finders, we're learning about early evolution of other solar systems, and now we can put this all in context. Why isn't that happening down, this raining down of projectiles from outer space? 
Well, this this certainly happened on the moon, and we know that it ha- it had to happen on the Earth even more so and more intensely because the Earth is a much larger gravity well. We just don't see those craters on Earth because of mountain building and erosion and the changes of uh, continental uh, plates and tectonics over time. So on Earth, the evidence has been erased, but on the moon, it's still there. Do you have another question, Neil? Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, Brad, what inspired you to um, learn about the moon and study it the way you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a geologist. I'm interested in, in um, materials and rocks and minerals. And, and early in my career, I got the opportunity uh, to study some of the moon rocks that were brought back by the Apollo missions. We still study those. And as Eli said earlier, you said uh, we are using more sophisticated instruments. Um, and I think uh, Becky said the same thing. We are asking new questions, and so we, we continue to study these materials. But it's of interest to me for a couple of reasons. One is I like to know how things formed and how they got the way they are. Um, the other thing is I'm interested in resources, and, and Becky also mentioned this. There are resources on the moon that are, that are there for us uh, to, to um, obtain at some point in the future. And so I look forward to the ability to do that as we go to the moon to learn how to live and work off Earth and beyond low Earth orbit. We've got to go back. Rebecca, do we have to go back to the moon to answer some of these questions? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, that there are a lot of people interested in going back to the moon for, as Brad says, for mining and obtaining resources that are either hard to obtain here on Earth or running out of. Um, but there's also just, you know, a lot of questions that we want to answer, and the moon can help us do that. How about using it as a launching pad to go to Mars and, and beyond? I've heard that uh, addressed from time to time. Well, that's actually a, a, a great use of the resources there. Um, the, what are the resources, you might ask? Hydrogen and oxygen that we can um, recover from the regolith uh, and perhaps water ice from near the poles and polar soil. That can be used as rocket fuel in addition to life-sustaining elements. And it's much, and it could be if we can get the processing going, much cheaper to produce those fuels on the moon and, and fuel up a rocket to then go beyond to Mars or wherever. On Earth, it's very expensive to get those materials off of Earth because of the significant gravity. I'm glad there are people like you around here to figure this stuff out. I mean, it would not occur to most of us to just looking at that uh, at that, ob- uh, that object in the sky. I have one call I want to take because we have to wind this up, but th- this is a question I, be- I believe everybody has. So let's bring in Alex calling from Webster Groves. Alex, quick question, please. Hello, yes, long-time listener, second-time caller. Um, just curious, I always hear about emergency rooms getting busier during full moons and police reporting more activity and having to sometimes use more patrolmen. Is there any truth to that? And then uh, why? <laughs> Go ahead, Rebecca. Um, I mean, this is one of these things that people hear about a lot, in, um, in part because this has been something that um, people have thought for a very long time. The word lunatic actually comes <clears throat> from the moon. Um, and it was thought a long time ago that, you know, the moon influenced our behavior and our ideas um, in a way that during full moons people would act out. Um, there is some truth to the fact that the moon is very bright at full moon, and so people are able to do more at night, and this has been true for millennia. Um, people were able to hunt, you know, greater distances and, and travel longer during the full moon phase. Um, but in terms of modern science, it's it's rather hard to prove any connection between behavior and a full moon um, that would suggest that there is a direct influence. There's probably a lot of coincidences. Um, And, you know, anymore in in modern life, um, artificial light at night is a much more potent driver of our activity than, than the light of the moon. 
Final thoughts from any of the folks in the room here? We have to wrap it up. Eli, do you have a final thought or question? Uh, not at the moment, actually. Okay. I'll let them talk. <laughs> Brad? Well, I, I just hope that um, we have the opportunity to, to actually get back to the moon. The U.S. actually has a program. Uh, it's uh, called Gateway, and the idea is to help provide the infrastructure for missions to the moon. And th there's a couple things going on there. One is working with commercial entities. There are a number of companies now that are actually in the space game. You, you know of SpaceX and, and you know of Blue Origin. Um, uh, these, are, these are companies that will get us um, off of Earth and back to the moon. I'm sure they have interests in the moon and, and going beyond. And so I would look to that in the future, NASA working with commercial interests. But the other thing is we've got to have international cooperation. These are big uh, ticket items, very expensive, um, but, but important to do for a number of reasons, not just science. We hope with science to be able to to participate and, and be a, a part of these missions. But getting the international cooperation going, getting commercial uh, interests involved, I think is the way it's going, and we will be back on the moon soon. You wonder about that these days, the international cooperation part of it. Rebecca, when can we expect your book? <laughs> well, I have to write it, um, and it's, that will have to be done by um, spring of 2020. So uh. sometime after that. Um, We'll have you back then to talk about more talk about the moon. Thank you all so much. Brad Jolliffe, professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University. Great to have you here. Freelance writer Rebecca Boyle, thank you. And science reporter Eli Chen, thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot. Very, thank very you. interesting very stuff. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 AWMU.